yeah, yeah, yeah. We're starting you off. You went there, didn't you? Yeah, we're starting off this class, my friends. This is Torah studies, just, you know, because we just started the recording. This is Torah studies. Torah portion is Ve'era. And we're starting already with, like, I feel like my jokes are getting crickets. Yeah. Um, anyway, so the class tonight, the class tonight, Linda, is, a, is, a, is technology also foiling you? Are you also being foiled by technology? Yes, I am. Join the club. Join the club. I know, I'm not a big techie. <sighs> All right. Techie, trekkie, here's what we are. We got the power of seltzer here. I got black raspberry, LaCroix. A little bit, bit of a different, a bit of a departure. Because tonight we are going wild with this Torah portion. It is going to be a hectic ride. I am so glad you're with me here tonight. <sighs> Torah studies. What is Torah studies about? I know you're wondering. I'm kidding. Everyone knows. But Torah studies to reset is our, de- our weekly look deeply look, perhaps. A deep. a deep weekly look at the Torah portion. This is a deep dive into one or two themes of the parsha. So just to reset the, um, the, the context of this week's Torah portion, this is the second portion of the book of Exodus. And as the name connotes, the book is talking about the Egyptian experience. Well, at least the first half of the book or so is talking about the Egyptian experience. We learned about slavery. We learned about suffering. We learned about Pharaoh's decrees. We read about last week. We learned about, we learned about um, the birth of Moses. Remember last week? Yes. There Moses is, lying back. Lazy river. He's just, yeah, he's just like chilling. He's just enjoying life in the raft. He's like, he's got his little beverage with the little umbrella thing. You know what I'm talking about, right? That little, the little straw, little umbrella. There's like music playing along the banks of the Nile. It's like this, it's this wonderful thing. Yeah. He's at the tiki bar. That's it. He's like, he's chilling. It's like Pharaoh's daughter is there. She's hanging out. He's hanging out. It's like, what's going on? Anyway, so we read about the birth of Moses. Last week in the Torah portion, there was the burning bush. So many, so many things last week. The burning bush, God's call to Moses to, to, to be the one to deliver the people uh, from Egypt. We read last week how Moses goes to Pharaoh, delivers the news. Pharaoh basically laughs him out of the room and makes the slavery worse. Whereupon the Jews say to Moses, thanks a lot. Thanks a lot. That's nicer than I was going to say. Yeah, thanks a lot, Moses. <laughs> you and your big ideas. Thank you very much. Look where we are. We're up the river without, up the creek without a paddle or something like that, right? So, like, now what are we supposed to do? Anyway, and that's how the Torah portion ends last week. This week's Torah portion begins with God telling Moses, because Moses asked the question, like, what would you send me for? God says, don't worry. It's going to get better. It's going to get better. Things are going to shift. Things are going to change. And so in this week's Torah portion, we have the beginning of the 10 plagues. In fact, we have 7 out of 10 plagues in this week's Torah portion. 7 out of 10. It's a lot of plagues. That's a lot of plagues. You know how long each plague took? We discussed this today on DPP, Daily Power of Arsha. Each plague was around a month. The duration of each plague. Considering the warning of the plague, the plague itself, different iterations of the plague, it says that each plague had... Um, different levels of severity, and then time in between plagues, it's about a month of plague, you know? Your standard, you know, a plague a month club, 
right? The plague, the dollar plague month club, right? I say dollar shave, but it's been a while. I mean, listen, here's the deal. Here's the deal. A plague a month. What do they say? An apple a day keeps the doctor away. A plague a month keeps the Jews at bay. I don't know. Whatever. Anyway, we, we read about the plagues. So this week's Torah portion takes the span of at least seven months. Are you with me? Seven plagues, a plague a month, plus there's a bit of a preamble here before the plague starts. So we're dealing with at least a seven-month time period, but we read it in, like, in one week, or if you come to you know, Shabbos morning, we read it in, you know, like, uh, in an hour or so, 45 minutes to an hour. So it seems like a little bit more compressed than it actually is. This, this is taking a little bit of time. And it's very instructive to go through the plagues. Right, what were the ten plagues? Dam, Tzafardeya, Kinim, Orev, Dever, Shechin, Bar, Arbe, Choshech, Machas, Bechoros. In English, they are in turn. This is in, the, the, in sequential order. We have blood. That's wherein the, I feel like I'm writing a legal document, wherein the, the Nile turns to, 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 to blood. We have frogs. Wherein frogs take over. You know the famous song, Who Let the Frogs Out? Who Let the, uh, no, don't let the Dogs Out? What? <laughs> Who Let the Frogs <laughs> True story, true story. When I did Exodus, and you're probably wondering, you did Exodus? I did Exodus. There was a production called Exodus. Legit. I've, I've said this before, right? Sandrine, have I? Yes. Have I? Yes. Guys, yes. Any acknowledge? No, nothing. Yes. I think I have. This is back in the day. With Paul Newman? No, not <laughs> Paul Newman wishes. By the way, Paul Newman, I think about Paul Newman every time I buy his uh, marinara sauce. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, so, no, Paul. So, um, what was I going to say? Yeah, so we did a production, this is back in the day, called Exodus. I did it in a few locations. We did it, yeah, for sure. We did it in Brooklyn one year. But the big the year that I'm thinking of, we did it in Montreal. Oh. I went to Montreal. This was a few weeks before Passover. We did it for like two weeks, two weeks of shows. Yeah. We took over. It was in Cavendish Mall. Anyone familiar with Montreal here? Anyone? Okay, I'll make it up then. I'll make it up. That's not a problem. Yeah, if no one knows Montreal, boom, <laughs> the options are more open. Kidding. Well, not kidding, but nonetheless. The, the, the mall was called Cavendish Mall. Cavendish Mall. Yeah. And it's interesting because like Montreal is French, right? There's a lot of French. So I'm driving one day and I see this sign, <laughs> this weird hexagonal red sign that says Arete. I'm like, I don't speak French. I blow right through it. <laughs> woo, woo. No, that never happened. No, I knew I could figure out it was a stop sign. Anyway, back to the story. That was a joke. So we did, there was a, there was a, um, like an anchor, you know like a malls or anchor stores yeah, yeah, yeah. at the ends or whatever. So there was an anchor store, I don't know which one, that had shutdowns. There was big, a big space available. So we took it over. I, listen, I didn't put together the production. I was just one of the main actors. I was Moses. I had a staff, legit. And I had a sheep, a baby sheep, a hundred percent legit. That I... I baby sheep on set that I would hold. This is, yeah, super, super cute, super cute. I still remember the day. I, honestly, I know we have a class here. It's going to happen. The class is going to happen. Everyone take it Why easy. Why did I know this? You knew, you knew. It's been a while. You knew, this is, it's like this. Yeah, yeah, it's, 
Who can, I, I also have to remind myself now and again what, like, you know, about this story. Anyway, so we did this thing for, we did this production for a few weeks. And we had rigged a whole set together with plagues. We did blood, legit. Um, spoiler alert, like secret, if you want to know how to like <coughs> get kids to think you're pulling off a plague, take a glass cup, right? Or a glass glass, right? You put a few drops of red um, food coloring yeah, yeah. yeah, in the bottom. Yeah, yeah. You can't really see it because it's just a few on the bottom. And then you pick it up and you hold it. All right, so you're blocking it so no one can see it. Then you pour a pitcher of water into it, clear water, and as the water fills up, guess what it looks like? Blood. Boom. That's your first plague. <laughs> then for the second plague, we rigged up the ceiling. Very high ceilings here. We rigged up the ceiling with um, these plastic and rubber frogs on wires. <laughs> and at the, at the right moment, they would all drop and dangle right, and these were for, this was a show for kids. It would dangle like the kids were sitting on the floor. It would dangle like, like not touching them, not hitting them obviously, but like, you know, enough where they could see it. And the lights would go out like poosh, and the, the, the frogs would fall. And we, we recorded a song, the song, Who Let the Frogs Out? I know that's not the original song, but that's where we're up to now. So we have the plague of frogs, just a little bit of throwback memory. Um, then there's lice, wherein Egypt is, inf uh, is infested. There's a lice infestation. Arrive, wild animals. Dever, pestilence, the animals die. Domesticated animals die. Shrin, boils. Shrin, boils. Barod is hail. Arbe is locust. Choshech, Arbe is Choshech, but not the number. Choshech, it's spelled differently. Choshech is darkness. And number 10 is uh, death of the firstborn. Those are your 10 plagues. Tonight we're going to focus on plague number two, which is the aforementioned, much talked about, much uh, ballyhooed. Is that a word maybe for tonight? Yes. Why not? See? Never used that before in class. <laughs> Didn't think you were going to get that tonight. Boom. <laughs> Pulled that one out of the hat. The much, hey, Karen, good to see you. It is great to see you. Maine? You still in Maine? All right. We're still, we're still waiting for our visit here. So surprise us. Don't yeah, just... Jump on in. So, um, but it's great to see you. So we're going to focus on the second plague. And with the understanding that everything in Torah, everything in Torah is a, is a whole universe of wisdom. Like every detail of Torah is, is, is like a world of teaching and insight and inspiration. And, and, and we could live, literally live our lives inspired by even one idea in Torah. Um, let alone when it's such a big theme as like one of the 10 plagues. So we know that there's a lot, of, a lot of wisdom to unpack. Well, the first question is, so tonight, in short, I'm not sure how else to say this uh, clear, tonight's going to be about the frogs. In Hebrew, the plague of frogs is known as tzifardeya. Tzifardeya. Tzifardeya, exactly. How do you say France in Hebrew? Svard. Svard. Sounds similar, a little bit different. Tsarfat. Tsarfat. Yeah. Tsarfat. So the letters, the letters are, are mixed a little bit. It's not. Okay. Now let's take a look. Let's take a look at how this is described in Torah. I'm going to. So everyone here, please flip open your, your booklets to page number four. I'm going to put it up on the screen. 
Give me a second here. Okay, let's go. Text 1A. All right, and Elio, if you don't mind reading this, but nice and loud so everyone at home can hear this as well. Text 1A, go for it. Yes, but in the English. God said to Moses, come to Paro and say to him, so said God, let my people go so that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will smite all your borders with Sephardia. Okay, so this is what God says to Moses to tell Pharaoh, the famous let my people go. Yeah, we've, we've, uh, that's, that's a popular refrain in this whole story. By the way, people always get it wrong. They always say, well, God, you know, the call was let my people go. Not exactly. It was let my people go so that they may serve me. There was a spiritual component. It wasn't just like, uh, you know, um, freedom and liberation and autonomy and that sort of thing, human rights. This was a, a, spiritual, a spiritual imperative. Anyway, but, but the focus here is on, this, on the next line. But if you refuse to let them go, God tells Moses to tell Pharaoh, I will smite all your borders with Sephardia. Now, what is Sephardia? That I, I already told you like, a bunch of times. You already know it. It's a plague of frogs. However, here's what you need to know. It's also here in big, bold words. Frogs at the top. But... But, 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 and this you may find interesting. There are actually multiple opinions in the commentaries about what Sephardia actually means. Now, we know it as frog, but that's only one of the options. Look at what the, ah, let me say that again in English. Look at the Ibn Ezra and what he says in text 1b. Elio, please continue. The commentaries disagree about the meaning of the word Sephardia. Many have said that it is a kind of fish found in Egypt known in Arabic as Altamasach. It emerges from the river and grabs people. Others say that these are the creatures found in most rivers that make a croaking sound. This is the correct view in my eyes, and it is the known one. So, thank you. The Ibn Ezra says there's two opinions as to the meaning of the Hebrew word Sfardea. Some He says many, many have said that it's a kind of fish that emerges from the river and grabs people. And I want to turn to you and ask you the question, what type of fish emerges from the water and grabs people? Sounds like a monster. <laughs> this is like, oh my gosh, we got a monster. This is like Loch Ness. This is Loch Ness. What are we? What are we dealing with here? Huh? A crocodile. Oh, there we go. There we go. An alligator or a crocodile could be the answer. So they're not fish. So here's the thing. The Ibn Ezra might have been speaking more, less literally, and more, I don't know what the right word is, as metaphorically, there you go, as a, a, a sea creature that emerges from the water and grabs people, that is an alligator or a crocodile. Do we know if alligators or crocodiles exist in Egypt? Do we know if they do? I'm asking. This is a, this is a question. We can find out. We need someone with some fierce Googling skills. Crocodiles exist in the Nile River in Egypt. There you go. There you go. Crocs. By the way, by the way, there are crocs in Atlanta also. In my house, there are the kids have crocs. Now, I, I know what you're thinking. I know what you're thinking. We can't make jokes like this, but we can. So the first opinion of Ibn Ezra is that what was the plague? The plague of crocs. No one knows this. It is a plague. You hate, well, I, I would, I, okay, I would hope that you don't have that much contact where, you know, it's a, it's a oh, the shoes, oh, that's hilarious. By, by the way, Crocs are making a comeback. I think somebody, yeah, I, I, not, don't shoot the messenger. Don't shoot the messenger. It's not, it's not me. I'm just saying. The second opinion is, as the Ibn Ezra says, 
that it's the, it's the creatures that make a croaking sound. Well, creatures that, croaking sound, creatures that make a croaking sound is the frog. That is the frog. And he says that's the correct view, and that's the known one, and indeed, that's what we know the plague to be, the plague of frogs. I just want you, we, we, this is a well-rounded class. This is a well-rounded class. If we're talking about the plague of frogs, you need to know that some people say it wasn't frogs, it was crocodiles. Good, fine. Next. When it comes to frogs, now that we've established that most say it's frogs, and that's the opinion we're sticking to, um, we need to look at some interesting info on frogs. We're going to look at, and I'll just map out the rest of the class so that we have a little bit of, but, but, little bit of clarity here. There's going to be a midrash that speaks about frogs in interesting and unique terms. We're going to explore that midrash. I will ask upwards of three questions, at least two, two or three questions on the midrash that speaks about frogs. We're then going to get into a whole question about the reason behind the plagues. What was the motive behind the plagues to begin with? We'll address that and walk away with a deeper insight into the meaning of frogs and the plague of frogs. And then, at the end, wrap it up with a bow a non-croaking bow that then brings this back to our lives. So that's what we're going to do. So first of the next steps is let's pour over the Midrash that speaks about frogs. I'm going to read this one. It's an involved text, 2A, 2B. It's a little bit long. I'm going to throw in some commentary. It's just so we all have clarity on it. All right, so I'm going to pull this up on the screen. You guys have it in front of you here in person. Page number six. Text to A. Midrash, huh? Why frogs? Why what? are we focusing on frogs? Are you going to explain that? Oh, why the plague of frogs specifically? Yeah. So that's, I was trying to, Bavarin, Bavarin means like preempt that by saying, we could, we could pick anything in Torah. You could pick any of the plagues and just, you know, explore it and expand on it. We pick frogs. Okay. There's a, there's a, there's a beautiful idea. Okay. So that's why we're, we're talking about frogs. Next year? In Jerusalem and maybe another plague, but but next uh, year lice. Next year lice. <laughs> we got we got some exactly. Woo! Right. Ha goals. Hashtag goals. Twenty twenty two. All right. Let's um, let's let's explore the midrash. Our sages say, "What is the meaning of the verse? The benefit of the land is in everything." It's a very strange verse. This verse comes from. Kohelet, Ecclesiastes, it says the benefit of the land is in everything, which I'm going to just say that in English, everything that exists on land is beneficial. You see how that makes a little bit more sense? <laughs> the benefit of the land is in everything means that everything on land has a benefit. That's what it means. As the Midrash continues, even things that you would view as unnecessary in the world, such as flies, fleas, and mosquitoes, were included in the creation of the world. As it is written, God saw all that he had done. The Midrash is telling us that nothing is, nothing is an accident and every single creature on earth plays a role and has a mission, even the flies, the fleas, and the mosquitoes. I know what you're thinking. The mosquitoes are to keep the mosquito businesses in business. The yeah, maybe, maybe, maybe that's, maybe that's something. But anyway, everything has a purpose. Everything has, has a place in God's world. That's the opening statement from our sages. Statement number two. 
Rabbi Acha, and, and you're probably noticing we haven't mentioned frogs yet. Don't worry, we're going to get there. Rabbi Acha ba Rabbi Chanina say. Next, next statement in the Medrash. Rabbi Acha ba Rabbi Chanina said the following. Even things that you would view as unnecessary in the world, such as snakes and scorpions, were included in the world's creation. God said to the prophets, what do you think that if you do not go on my mission, I have no emissary? The benefit of the land is in everything. I carry out my mission, says God, even through a snake, even through a scorpion. So, second paragraph. Rabbi Achabar, Rabbi Chinina says, I'm just, I'm just going to say it in my own words. Again, everything, there's nothing that is unnecessary. Everything has a purpose, even snakes and scorpions. And you might be wondering, well, what's the purpose of snakes and scorpions? God says to the prophets, you guys think that you're going to tell everybody what to do and not to do, and you're going to be the ones to, like, you know, maybe do some fire and brimstone. I, can, I, I don't really need you, Nevian prophets. I have snakes and scorpions that could do my thing to get rid of what needs to be gotten rid of. You with me on this? Okay, yeah. In other words, snakes and scorpions to take out the bad guys also. We don't need... Imagine, imagine like a, an action movie, and you have like the hero who takes out the villains, and then the, the producer says, or the director says, or the screenwriter says, you know what, we don't even need the, the hero. We just have a snake or scorpion, just like, you know, middle of the night, boom, there you go, the bad guy's out. Theoretically. So that's what God is saying. Snakes and scorpions also play their role in their own way. They, they take care of whatever God uh, uh, views as whatever that business is. Text 2B, the Midrash continues. And this is where we get froggy. My mission, says God, is carried out even through a frog. And the truth is, there's a little bit of a gap here in the, in the, uh, in the quote, in the citation, where God says, my mission is carried out even through a, um, a wasp and through a frog. So wasps are also included, even though that's not really our main topic. The main topic is frogs. But let's continue with the wasp. You should know that this is so, because were it not for the wasp, how would the Holy One, blessed be, he have punished the Amorites, the Canaanites? And if it were not for the frog, how would he have punished the Egyptians? Aha. Okay, now we're getting back to Egypt, which is interesting. But let's first talk about the wasp. Let's get the wasp out of the way. And then let's, let's focus on the frogs. You guys with me? That's what I think. Let's get the wasps out of the way. So who were the, what, who were the wasps? What were the wasps? Where did they, it's hard to say for me right now, wasps. Who were the wasps? What were the wasps? And where did they get involved with the Amorites slash Canaanites? What are we even talking about here? Very simple. Let's go to the next text. Let's go to the next text. Um, Linda, please read this one. Text 3A, nice and loud. And I shall send the Tzirah before you, which shall drive out the Hevite, the Canaanite, and the Hittite from before you. God says, God says in the book of Exodus, a little later, a little past our story, that I will send the Tzirah. The Tzirah is the wasp before you. This is referring to when the Jews will ultimately approach the land of Israel, the Holy Land. Right? This is after the Exodus. When they approach the Holy Land, God promises, I'm going to send the wasps before you, and they're going to drive out the Hevite, the Canaanite, the Hittite from before you. And so it was. So it was. Take a look at Rashi, text 3b. Linda, please continue. This is a fascinating tale of the wasp and the wasp attack against the, the nations. Go for it. The tzirah, a kind of flying insect, which would strike them in their eyes, 
inject venom into them, and they would die. The Tzirah did not cross the Jordan, and the Hittites and the Canaanites are those of the land of Sichon and Og. Therefore, out of, out of all of the seven nations, the Torah did not mention any but these. As for the Hivites, which are mentioned, although they were on the other side of the Jordan in Tractate Sota, our rabbis taught, it stood on the bank of the Jordan and cast venom upon them. Fascinating, fascinating tale. This is Rashi drawing from the Midrash and the Talmud and all that stuff. So Rashi says, basically, what was the Tzirah? It was a flying insect, a wasp, that would strike the enemy in their eyes, inject venom in them, and they would die. This is like, you know, ever hear like the murder hornets? Yeah. Yeah? The murder These are the murder wasps. Murder what? It's a it's a thing. I'm not. Whoa, hold on, slow down. This is not 2022. We have enough. Sorry, we don't need to worry about murder wasps. This is an ancient situation back in the day. That w this was specifically for the approach of the Jews to the Holy Land, as Rashi points out. It never crossed the Jordan. These wasps did not go into Israel. These wasps attacked on the as they were approaching Israel, but still on the other side, on the eastern side of the Jordan, aka the Transjordan. This was in their battles against Sichon and Og. This is what assisted, what aided in their battle were these killer wasps, and then the Hevites that were in Israel, so the wasps, for them, they stood or flew, whatever it was, they were positioned on the eastern side of the Jordan and shot their venom upon them from across the river. Anyway, anyway, this is all to move the wasps out of the picture so we can focus on the frogs. God says, even the wasps play a role in my plan. In this case, they took out the enemy of the Jewish people. And as we saw before, if we turn back, turn back the page a little bit to text 2b, the last, the last quote that we had before from the Midrash, the last line was, and after the wasp were mentioned, and were not for the frog, how would he have punished the Egyptians, right? What's the benefit of the frog? The frog, which seems like, you know, who needs frogs? The frog was to punish the Egyptians, and that, of course, is a reference to our second plague that we are focusing on tonight. So I want to ask you a question on that last line. I'm going to quote that line again. I have it highlighted here on the, on, the, on the screen. And were it not for the frog, how would he have punished the Egyptians? If it were not, I'm going to say that again and, and see if that line sinks in. Were it not for the frog, how would he have punished the Egyptians? What's your answer? Any, way you Any other way you wanted. How about nine other plagues, bro? Nine other plagues you got. Oh, for, not for the frogs. What's going to be with the Egyptians? We wouldn't be able to get the Egyptians. Are you kidding me? You ever heard of blood or lice or anything else? You got nine other plagues. That's number one. Question number two. Uh, by the way, this is all part of the same question. I'm just like dividing into like ABCs. I know it's a one, two, three. Scratch that from the record, please. So ABCs. So number one, oh, I did it again. A, right, there's nine other plagues. B, this wasn't even one of the major plagues. It would seem like it's not one of the... When you think of major plagues, what do you think of? I th firstborn. Right? Uh, listen, right, well, firstborn, death of firstborn, that's like the major plague, right? That's for sure the big one. But if you think of like top 10 plagues, oh, whoops, everyone makes it. But if you think of like your top destructive, <laughs> devastating plagues, right? What's on your list? What's at the top of the list? Death of the firstborn, what I'm going to... Locusts, I would, I would go hail. I would go hail because that had fire and ice. Oof. Killer combo. 
killer combo, right? The ice broke through, and then the fire inside burned everything down. Like, oh my gosh, devastating, super devastating, a miracle and a miracle. I, I think Nile River turning to blood, the first one is pretty impactful. Frogs, yeah, sure. That wasn't fun. You know, you read more up about it, you realize like, oh, really got, like they really got into a lot of things, like even intestines, or whatever. I don't want to get too gross, but like, okay, fine. So it was, no, like, it, listen, it can't, we can't discount the frogs unless it's, you know, past the plague season and then it's on clearance. That was a joke. We can't discount, no, hey, listen, listen, hold on. I'm trying here. We can't discount that the frogs were a major plague, but are they at the top of the list? Look at the line of the Medrash. We're not, for the, just going back to this one line, I'm just picking on the line. Not for the frog. How would he have punished the Egyptians? How would he have punished? With nine other plagues. If this is the one that punished the Egyptians, this is the one, this is your top plague? What does that even mean? What's going on here? So these are the questions that we have on this Midrash. All right, now... But there are 10 plagues altogether. 10 plagues altogether. Why 10? Why 10? Oh, good question. So you should know the commentaries, as you can imagine, the commentaries do a lot of commenting. They're really earning their, uh, their hand cramp writing about the Exodus and the Ten Plagues. There's a lot of ink on that. There's ten spherot, ten energies, ten, ten, you know, ten dimensions, ten spherot. The ten plagues correspond to that. They also correspond to the ten utterances with which the world was created. And there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of allusions. Hold on. There's a lot of allusions to the... Um, to the uh, to the plague. So, but that's that's gonna pull us a little bit a little bit too, of course, to do a deep dive into that. Maybe maybe next year we'll uh, we'll do a deep dive into the ten, the psychology of the ten plagues. But today it's about frogs. And and the Medrash says, if not for the frog, how would God have punished the Egyptians? And that just whoa 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 whoa. What are you saying? What are you saying? If not for the frogs. There's nine other plagues. This doesn't seem like the biggest one anyway. What's going on here? So to understand this, we are going to keep on turning our wheels and keep on moving forward with this. And we're going to talk about something interesting. And that is, if you notice, there are two opinions in the Midrash. I told you we're going to do a deep dive in the Midrash, and that's what I want to do. Turn back to text 2a. There were two paragraphs on page number 6. There were two paragraphs. The first paragraph Begins with our sages say. The second paragraph begins with Rabbi Achabar Rabbi Chinina said. And you know, when you study a little bit of Talmud, a little bit of Midrash, you realize that when you have when you have this construct, where first it says, "Well, the rabbis say this," and then one rabbi says that, it's setting up a bit of a dispute, known as a machloket. Yeah, it's like a bit of a difference of opinion, which seems to be the rabbis are saying this, right? The rabbis are saying this, and Rabbi Acha is saying that. However, in this case, they seem to be saying the same thing. What do the sages say? This is, again, going back to text 2a, the measures that we're focusing on. The sages, our sages tell us that everything has a purpose. Even things unnecessary have a purpose, such as fleas, flies, and mosquitoes. And the second paragraph, Rabbi Acha bar Rabbi Chenina, says the same thing. Even things that seem unnecessary have a purpose, such as snakes and scorpions. So what's the difference between uh, the sages and Rabbi Achaba, Rabbi Chinina? What's the difference? 
They both say that things that seem unnecessary have a purpose. What is the difference between them? The difference is, somebody help me out here. What's the difference between the first and second paragraph? What's the difference? We're talking about things that seem unnecessary that have a purpose. What's the difference? Well, he's specific on unnecessary. Oh, uh, well, go. He's, he's, he's pointing at the neg what we think of as a negative. Rabbi Hanina. Ah, ooh, good. Good, good, good. Let me explain. Let me unpack what Elio just said. Here we go. The sages say, what do I mean by unnecessary? The thing like fleas, flies, and mosquitoes. Which we would call annoying things, but not like cruel and destructive things. Mosquitoes are destructive. Uh, yeah, they could be destructive, but they're a little bit more... Uh, I, w- I would put mosquitoes more into... They could be destructive. I would put mosquitoes more into the, the annoyance category. Whereas Rabbi Akhbar Rabbi Chenina says... The unnecessary things that I'm talking about that have a purpose, that still have a purpose, are not just the things that are unnecessary, but like things that seem, things that seem pointless, but things that are actually destructive like snakes and scorpions. You with me on this? So paragraph one, the rabbis are telling us, this is, let me just clarify what I'm saying here. We're going in progress, like deeper and deeper or, or more of a chiddish, more of a chiddish means like more of a, of a novelty, of a, of, a, of, a, of a new teaching. So the rabbis start off by saying, even things that seem unnecessary in God's world have a purpose in God's world, unnecessary being things that we can't figure out what they're for, like things that seem annoying, like um, flies, uh, flies, gnats, and mosquitoes. Is it gnats? Yeah? No, flies, fleas, sorry. Flies, fleas, and mosquitoes. The next rabbi says, no, even, even deeper. Even, even more. Even the things that are dangerous, yeah, killer creatures like snakes and scorpions, even they have a purpose in God's world. Perfect. Yeah, yeah, fine. Listen, anything can kill ultimately. But it's not, yeah, yeah, but that's like the, the disease transmitted by, but snakes themselves, they have venom, right? They have their own venom. They have, you know, they have their own, own situation. So it's, it's, like a, it's, it's like amped up a little bit. So the first, the, the sages say, even the annoying things have a purpose. The next rabbi says, even the dangerous things have a purpose. And then he says, and even more so, says Rabbi Achi, continues in text 2B, if you recall, right? I'm going to share the screen again, and you guys can see it also. If you have that page, page number 7 in text 2B, where God says, so-called quoting God, my mission, God says, is carried out even through a frog. Which makes it sound like a frog is even a bigger idea than even snakes and scorpions. So it sounds like it's progressing like this. Like, the annoying things have a purpose. Even the dangerous things have a purpose. Even the frogs have a purpose. And now we can ask our second question, which is, how is is frog like the biggest leap (laughs) <laughs> Whoops. How is the frog the biggest, um, the biggest idea, right? It's like the annoying things have a purpose, the dangerous things have a purpose, even the frogs have a purpose. Even the frogs? What's wrong with the frogs? It seems like we're escalating the idea further and further. We're, we're, we're ratcheting up, we're ratcheting up the, uh, the teaching over here and, and building up to the ultimate, which is even the frog. And my question is, even the frog? Even the frog? What's wrong with the frog? Why would we think the frog doesn't have a purpose? Why are we saying even the frog has a purpose in God's world? What does that even mean? I hope that question makes sense. The truth is, even if the question doesn't make sense, the answer will make sense. 
So let's pursue a perspective here. Let's pursue a, pursue a perspective here on the plagues in general. Why were there plagues? This is not going to answer the question of why 10 specifically, but it's going to answer the question of why plagues at all. If I would ask you, cold, why did God bring plagues upon the Egyptians? What would you say? Punishment. To punish. Straight up punishment. Egyptians, you guys were bad. You guys enslaved the Jewish people. God says, boom, you're going to get hit with plagues. But when you look through the verses, you realize there's another agenda with the plagues. What's the other agenda? That, well, it's to, right. So the freedom I would put as a, as a byproduct of a punishing and breaking the Egyptians. You punish the Egyptians, you break them, and you end up, um, you end up freeing the Jewish people. But what's, there's another reason that's stated in Torah. Revealing Hashem. Power. Uh, power. Good. Well, hold on. What did you say? Power. Say it again. Power? Power, yeah. Who has the power, God or Pharaoh? Good, good. Who has the power? So along those lines, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to frame it like this. The plagues were not just punitive. They were also instructional. They were points. Oh, exactly. They were intended also as points of instruction and teaching. The plagues were intended not just to strike and to punish, and to break, and to release the Jewish people. All of that is true. I'm not discounting that. That's definitely, you know, main objective. But another main objective, not to the exclusion of this, but another primary objective was as a point of education and instruction. Where do I see this? It's in the verses many times, including the one that I'm going to share with you right now that we're going to read together. Um, Sandrine, please read text number... Five. We're skipping text four. Let's go to text number five. I think we skipped text four. Maybe we didn't. Um, this is from Exodus 7.5. I believe at DPP, we study this this afternoon. All right, take it away, please. Sandri, nice and loud. And so Egyptians shall know that I am God when I stretch forth my hand over Egypt and I will take the children of Israel out of their midst. Take a look at that line. Thank you. And the Egyptians shall know that I am God. Look at that. They shall know that I am God when I stretch forth my hand. In other words, what are the plagues intended? Not just to punish, not just to hurt, not just to break, but as an act of pedagogy. It's a pedagogical instrument. It's an act of teaching and instruction. It's what we might call experiential learning. You're going to learn through experience through hands-on, tactile experience, that I am God. This is God's classroom, and these are the lessons, right? That's it. Now, the only message is to the Egyptians, don't croak yet, because there's more, oh, man, because there's more, sorry, because there's more to learn, because there's more to learn. Ten plagues are ten acts of instruction, and so I ask you, what lesson did the Egyptians need to learn? That's my next question. If we understand the plagues, not just as punishment, but as education, so I'll ask you a question. What lesson, what lesson did the Egyptians need to learn? What do you think? What lesson did the Egyptians need to learn? Oh, that God is God. So to understand this, the depth of, huh? There no other gods before. Good, 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 good. Excellent. That God is God and there's no other gods. So to understand the education that was needed, let's understand the mistake 
that could be made about God. And the mistake can be made on three levels. We'll identify soon which one Egypt made, which of these three. But we're going to speak now in general terms. I hope everyone's with me still. We're going to speak in general terms about where a person could have a misunderst uh, misunderstanding about God and a misidentification about God or a misappreciation about God, etc. Where to, that would necessitate or would require a lesson from God about who's who and what's what. So again, before I continue, let me just quickly circle back and make sure we're all on the same page here. We talked about frogs, second plague. We brought a medrash that said that even the frogs have a purpose, to which we asked, even the frogs. And that's the only way God could have punished the Egyptians through the frogs. Something, something doesn't make sense over there. We then said that the plagues in general, like put, put the frogs aside for a moment. The plagues in general were not just punitive actions. They were instructional um, uh, opportunities, let's say. And what's the instruction about God being God? And let's understand why there needs to be instruction because a person can make one of three mistakes. These are different types of errors a person can make about God. Error number one. A person could believe in God. A person could say, I believe that there is a first cause, a prime mover, a big dude in the sky or whatever it is, right? Some original force that put everything into motion. Some guy with a beard on a throne and a zapper, right? The usual. I'm, 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 right. So I believe in God, but I also believe that God put many other forces in the universe and God gave them powers. And so I believe in the sun having power and the moon having power and the constellation, the stars having power. I believe that the tide has power. I believe that the Clorox has power. I'm joking about tide and Clorox. I sorry. I believe that the forces, that was a joke. Man, I'm cleaning it up tonight. I believe, oh, I believe, I believe that God is ultimately the big boss, but there are also other little bosses that God put in place. This belief has a term in Hebrew. It's called shituf. Shituf. What is shituf? It means a partnership. This is the perspective which is rejected, but let me just clearly state that this. this is rejected by Judaism and pure monotheism. But the perspective of Shituf is that God has partners. And I know we've talked about us being partners in creation. That's a bit different. This means that there are other forces that actually have power, even if it's power granted by God, but believing that these forces have actual power on some level, their own power is still not pure monotheism and it is still... Um, not, uh, not kosher. Now, there's a big discussion, a halachic, this is parenthetical, there's a big halachic Jewish legal discussion about whether shituf is only forbidden for the Jew or is it also forbidden, this belief in other powers um, partnering with God, is it only forbidden for the Jew or is it also forbidden for the non-Jew? In other words, is it only Jewish monotheism that requires the rejection of shituf but others could believe in Shittuv and it's not really a, it's not a deal breaker or is it for everybody? I don't want to get into it now because it's, it's a big debate. It's a halakhic debate and I, I, I'll just tell you in short, some say this, some say that. And, and to get into the nitty gritty is just going to pull us too far off. But it's an interesting conversation. But certainly in Judaism, we don't believe in Shittuv. Shittuv means the partnership. No. 
But what does a partnership look like? It looks like a person who says, I believe that there is a God, but I'm pretty much worshiping all these other things because these things also have power. And at the end of the day, these things have maybe a little bit more immediate relevance to me. So I'm going to worship them because they can help me out right now. So like the sun, I'm going to worship the sun because God is God, sure. But the sun is what's, 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 what's given the heat and what's given the light and what's making things grow. So I'm, I'm, all, I'm all in on the sun. That's what a person might say. To which we say, all right, this is shittuf, this is, uh, this is not cool. But that's, again, first, first, idea, first level of you know, mis, misidentifying or misunderstanding of God. Next level is where a person outright denies God. So this is not a person saying, I believe in God and a partner. This is somebody saying, I don't believe in God at all. I don't believe in God. Baba Mises, right? Fairy tales, nonsense. There is no God. There is no source. There is no creator. Right? This person in the modern time might cite science and, and, and proof and whatever it is and say, this is ridiculous, religion and, and faith in God. Baba Mai says, this is crazy, you guys are Meshuga. Religion is, who said religion is the open of the masses? Marx. Was that Marx? Yeah. He, Marx. he made his Marx. Marx. Yes, Marx. So, so, yeah, this is that perspective. No God, Baba Mises, ridiculous, forget about it. That's, that's the, uh, so again, perspective, error, we'll call it error one, two, and three. Error number one is that God has partners. Error number two, somebody said, there's no God. Error number three, I believe there's a God, but I don't care. <laughs> you with me? Sure, there's God but it doesn't bother me. Like, I don't care. Completely indifferent. Now, if I would ask you to rank these three errors in order of severity, like which is the worst, one way of, of, of organizing this or one way of, of stacking these three would be to say that the person who outright denies God's existence, the person says, I don't believe in God. You're crazy. You believe in God. That's Meshuggah. That's nuts. Where's the proof? Somebody who says that, you would say, is like the worst. However, however, there is an argument to be made that the third one, yeah, you like that one also? The third one, the one who says, sure, there's God. No problem. Doesn't bother me. Doesn't, like, I don't care. Totally apathetic, totally indifferent. We one could argue, and tonight we're going to make this argument that that is actually the worst. Why is that the worst? I need to read to you a, a bomb of a text. I need to read a text that will blow your mind. This is text. This is text number 11 and 12. All right, I'm going to read two texts. Text 11 and 12. Here we go. I'm going to jump in. Turn the page, please, to page 15 and 16. I'm going to do it here online. Make it super easy. Text 11 begins right here. This is from the Rebbe Rashab, fifth Rebbe, and his Kunsh his treatise on prayer. He writes the following. As is known, there are three general divisions of temperaments among animal souls. These are referring to human characters, human characteristics that take on animalistic type of tendencies. There's ox animal souls, sheep animal souls, and goat animal souls. 
What's the difference? The goat is the most insolent of the animals with tremendous firmness and strength who is completely unable to be moved from its place. The goat is not excitable and strength or determination is not discernible. It simply stands its ground without any fluctuation. The assertiveness is only recognizable when one tries to impact it in any manner. Then its determination and strength, which is not affected by anything, is noticeable. The ox, however, the ox, so that's the, that's the goat. What about the ox? The ox gores. It displays its strength and prowess by goring and kicking. The sheep, on the other hand, has a soft nature and it can be easily subdued and transformed. Three different types of people. There's the person who's like the sheep. Let's start from the bottom. The person who's the sheep. Gentle, docile. All right. Then you have the ox. Oh, kicking and screaming and fighting and goring and oh, just like a bull in a china shop. Then you have the goat. The goat. You don't hear from the goat. But you try to move the goat. Ooh, boy. The goat, it's like I once heard the difference between the usher and the ani, the rich person and the poor person. Yeah, let's say the poor person goes over to the rich person's house for a meal and they have a steak dinner and the poor person is going and eating the steak like this and he hasn't had a meal in days and the rich person is with a knife. And say, so who's more, who has more of an animalistic desire? You would say, who? The, the person who's, who's got it. No, 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 That's, it's looking at it wrong. Just try to pull away the food from one of them. Then you'll see. Then you'll see who's really the materialist, right? But try to pull away the food. The poor person will say, I got what I got. Thank God, at least I got this. The rich person will say, how dare you? How <laughs> dare you? That's who you know is really, really caught by materialism when you try to take it away. So the goat is not goring like a, the goat's not making noise. The goat's very docile. The goat's doing its thing. But you know what? Try to move the goat from its position. Oh, good luck. Good luck. What is, how does this translate into our conversation? You wonder. Take a look at text 12. And here's where it gets real, my friends. That said, he says, there's no need to worry about ox-like people. When you encounter an ox person, don't worry. The very fact that the ox personality type opposes and raises challenges against matters of faith shows that it's affected him. When the guy protests, what are you, crazy? What kind of God are you talking about? You got a live wire. If someone's that excited about it, if someone's that anti it, oh, we got something to talk about. It's hit a nerve. Oh, they're alive. They're living with it. Oh, it's great. You just got to work with it, but they're already, they're ready to go. You're dealing with someone who's alive. Such a person, he says, is roused, i.e. inspired in two ways. Either he is so troubled by his spiritual affairs that he is roused to tshuva, or the contrary, he fights and opposes. It is possible to deal with and help such a person, for the light of holiness has affected him. The only reason why he opposes it is because he's not yet ready to handle it. It reminds me of the story of uh, uh, Rabbi Adin Steinsaltz, a blessed memory. Uh, Evan Yisrael, Adin Evan Yisrael, Steinsaltz, the great scholar from Israel. He once invited, he's a, he was a professor amongst many things, a scholar, professor. He invited one of his fellow colleagues in whatever university he taught in Israel to come over for, 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 maybe like the, pre, like the break fast of Yom Kippur or the pre-game fast of Yom Kippur, one of those two. And the, this, this professor says to him, the pre-game show, the post-game show, the professor says to him, oh, Yom Kippur, are you kidding me? I don't fast in Yom Kippur. I make a point every Yom Kippur morning to eat a ham sandwich with milk, blah, blah, blah. He goes through it. And so Adin says, Rabbi Steinzel says to him, so we both keep Yom Kippur. 
I keep it my way, you observe it your way. Like we each observe it. In other words, his point was the fact that it bothers you so much you have to make a point means that you're still proving him kipper. You're still like, you're still you're still marking it in your own way, even if it's antagonistic. It's it got you. It got you. It Dafka. It's called being engaged. It's being engaged, and a negative is still being engaged. Exactly. Perfect. Take a look at how the Rebbe Rashab continues in this text, text 12. Say, for example, you relate a godly idea, and someone comes along and bitterly opposes your words with much excitement. This is the person you can impact. Someone says, you're Meshuggah, and you say, perfect, thank you very much. Welcome to the conversation. It's glad to, glad to have you here. We're, go, we're rocking. By contrast, last paragraph, the goat is not bothered by anything at all and never gets excited for he is cool. Not that cool, but the other cool. Did you pray or not? Did you put on tefillin or not? Are you happy or not? Don't care. Don't care. Such a person is not bothered with holiness at all. That is the worst type of klipa, the worst <laughs> type of challenge. It's the one of indifference. You tell someone, God said this, God said that. To talk. Sure. They don't, get upset. <laughs> they, don't, they don't get riled up. So now what? There's no one to talk to. They don't care. Yes, sure, no, sure. Totally indifferent. Elie Wiesel, I have the quote. Here, hold on, I have the first, I have the whole quote here. The opposite, no, it's in my book. Ah. <laughs> I, I get the quotes. The opposite of love is not hate, it's indifference. The opposite of art is not ugliness, it's indifference. The opposite of faith is not heresy, it's indifference. The opposite of life is not death, it's indifference. How's Elie Wiesel? When you have something that's, when you have something that's engaging, engaged, at least you got something. So here's the point. There's the person that says, I believe in God, plus one. You can work with that. Someone says, I don't believe in any God, what are you talking about? You can still deal with that guy. The person that says, eh, yeah, God, no God, I don't, <laughs> whatever. The whatever is the worst. You're ready to translate it into animals? Let's translate it into animals. You have certain animals, certain creatures, not animals necessarily, certain creatures. The rabbi said, everything has a purpose. Every creature has a purpose. Even the flies, even the gnats, even the fleas, even the mosquitoes. Oh, sure. Okay. Then the next rabbi, Rabbi Acha says, even the dangerous animals, the antagonistic animals, the animals that are, you know, like, I'm going to get you. Those also, you can, you can convert the energy into something positive. But then you have the frogs. Then you have the frogs. What are the frogs? Neither here nor there. Frogs, like, they're just, they just are. The frogs are like the goat. This is not an attack against frogs. Frogs, feel safe. Don't worry. We're not, we're not attacking you. We're just using you as a, as a model. This is not personal. Frogs, this is just a, a, an archetype, if you will. The archetype of the frog is that which just, it doesn't, it's not, it's not annoying, right? It's not, it's not dangerous. It's just, just sitting there on its lily pad, just doing its thing, just chilling, you know, eating flies, right? Just, right? There were two frogs on a, on a, on the, thing on the lily pad one jumped in sorry 
messed that up. There were two frogs on the lily pad. One decided to jump. How many were left? Two. two. Deciding to jump is not the same as jumping. Good. Fine. We're, we're with that. So the, the frog... Classic joke. The frog is... The frog is indifferent. Now, is, are frogs actually indifferent? I have no idea. But in this context, this is how the Rebbe explains it. The frog represents... It's not annoying. It's not dangerous. Just a frog. Just doing its thing. And that is the klipa of Egypt. That is the prototype of, of Pharaoh and the Egyptians. Pharaoh who says, not, you know, um, I'm anti-God or whatever it is, but Pharaoh who's like, who's God? What's God? Yeah, doesn't bother me. God said, let my people go. Your God said, let, 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 let you guys go. Whatever. He whatever's Moses and Aaron. He's not happening. Like, it's just, you're not, he don't rile him up. He's like, not, he's just not impressed. Completely indifferent to the, whole, to the whole spiel. And the message of the plague of frogs is that this is the hardest nut to crack. The hardest nut to crack is the frog, is the indifference, is the pharaoh. And that's why the Torah says that what did the frogs do? They jumped into the ovens. They went, what does that mean, jumped into the ovens? It means they, they infiltrated the Egyptian homes even to the point that the Torah says, specifically, they jumped into the ovens, which means ovens represents heat and passion, as I mentioned earlier today in, in DBP. That means that the indifference was converted into passion. That is, the greatest, that is the greatest accomplishment. To move someone from shituf to belief in God, from partnership into belief in God, that's relatively easy. That's much easier. To move someone even from fierce antagonism to a place of embracing God, also doable. But to move someone from complete indifference to passion, that takes a plague of frogs. That takes, that's a big accomplishment. To move the frogs into the heat of the oven, so to speak, that is a very big accomplishment, which is why the Medrash says, if not for the frogs, how could the Egyptians have been transformed so to speak. How could they have been educated? If not for the frogs, what would teach the Egyptians that even a cold, indifferent creature, an apathetic creature, can become passionate about something? And the message for us is a powerful one. And that is that we should never, it's the toughest nut to crack, so to speak, but we should never discount even the frog. Even the one who's indifferent, there's still hope. It's the hardest and when you encounter the other ones, it's easier. When you encounter the goat slash frog personality, it's much harder. But you know what the message of the plague of frogs is? Never give up. We should never write off the frog. If we catch ourselves in a frog-like moment, in a moment of not caring so much, we should realize that we're not beyond hope. We should believe in ourselves. Okay, in the moment I'm feeling a little indifferent, in the moment I'm feeling a little cynical, in the moment I'm feeling a little apathetic, but that can change and that will change. It's like when you're uninspired and you're uninspired to inspire yourself. It's like you don't care and you don't even care that you don't care. Right? Is there hope? The answer is yes. The Plague of Frogs teaches us that there's education and transformation that can happen even with the frogs. Even when you don't care, and you don't care that you don't care, there's still hope. The Kutzke Rebbe once said, the Kutzke Rebbe once said, Menachem Endel of Kutzke, is very sharp. He said, a person should always view themselves as they're lying down and a blade, like the guillotine blade, is at their neck. 
That's how like, you know, life is so like high stakes and everything. And one of his students asked him, what if you don't feel that? So that means that it's the giti, it's the blade is already cut through. But that's the katsugareba, that was a sharp statement. But today we're learning that's not the case. Even if we don't feel inspired, even if we don't feel like we care that we don't care, there's still hope, there's still potential, right? There's still a way to get heated back up and to get once again inspired and passionate about Yiddishkeit, about Hashem, about God, about Torah, mitzvot, prayer, etc. So what's the moral of the story? And this, uh, hopefully, has, has tied together all the pieces. Why was the, why, why was the plague of frogs such a big plague? Because it represents converting or educating or transforming, that's a better word, even the indifference of Egypt. And why the frog? The frog represents something that's like, it's not bad, it's not annoying, it just is. It's just, that's like the personality, like, yeah, I am, God, no God, it doesn't matter. Even that person can be converted into a, uh, converted is a bad word, it can be transformed into a, 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 into a, into a space of, of inspiration. And so, here's the message. We live in times in which it's very easy to become disillusioned. It's very easy to become, not, not hateful, I mean, it is also easy to become hateful and anti, but it's, it's um, I mean, this is a challenge in Israel, right? So you have the religious are against the second, the second are against the other, like everyone hates, hates each other. So that's, uh, but in America, we have another issue, which is not necessarily the hate of the religious, but it's like, Whatever. Indifference. It could be. And I don't mean to put it in any specific corner or whatever it is. This is true for every one of us. Every one of us might wake up one day and be indifferent, even while we're doing a mitzvah. We could be praying and be indifferent. We might be just saying the words, and our heads are elsewhere. The question is, is there hope? And the answer is, yes. That's what the plague of frogs teaches us. There is hope. It's not easy, but there's hope. But it requires that we make a jump, like the frogs. We make a jump. And to this, I'll conclude with this idea. It's like trying to get that clutch shift manual car started. And it's stalling. You can't get it to go. One trick is you start rolling it downhill. You're putting it a little downhill. right? And as it's moving, it catches and it gets going. This is from a guy who's never driven clutch in his life. So... Such an expert I am, but this is my understanding, that if you get it rolling, it can kick in. And what's the message? Sometimes it's like you go, it's like you feel you're in a bad mood or you're, you're in an indifferent mood, a cynical mood, and you're at a wedding. Remember back in the day, people had in-person weddings, and, and you're at a wedding, and, um, and you're not interested in dancing, right? You're not hateful today, you're just like, yeah, whatever. You know what the best thing to do is? Stand up and walk into the circle and just start moving your legs and start moving your arms, whatever it is. That's not my dance. I'm just saying, right? Just start, start getting out there and just start moving around. And before you know it, you're going you're gonna to feel, you're going to get into the mood. You're going to start feeling the music, start feeling the, the experience and start celebrating. And that's the same thing with when it comes to a mitzvah. When it comes to a mitzvah, just do it. Just jump in. And even if it feels cold at the beginning, please God, it'll heat up. So that's the story of the frogs. It reminds us the dangers of indifference, right? So we have to be careful with indifference, the dangers of indifference, or the danger of indifference, but also the hope of our amphibious friends, our fearless amphibian friends 
who take that leap of faith into those ovens and, um, and in the process gain that passion. That is our story as well. So, as we conclude Torah studies for tonight, this is our last edition of Torah studies in 2021. May we have a year, may we commit to a year of passion in our Yiddishkeit, passion in our Torah study, in our prayer, in the mitzvahs that we do, not rote Judaism, by rote, just, you know, ro uh, robotic, um, uh, you know, like monotone, monotone, whatever, monotone Judaism, but passion and vibrant Yiddishkeit, where we feel it and we're vibrant. We have to be careful when we feel ourselves slipping into that cold, um, indifferent, apathetic, maybe cynical space. We have to be careful to jump in to some excitement. And if we need a buddy, we should have a buddy to help us, you know, warm us up a little bit and help us out of that uh, space of coldness. The, the frog is a cold-blooded creature. The idea is to move from that cold-blooded place to a place of warmth to be a Lebedic mensch, to be a Lebedic yid, to be a, a, a lively person, a lively Jew, and uh, the blood should be pumping. All right, thank you for joining me tonight for Torah studies. May it be an inspiring year for all of us, and uh, lots of blessings. Thank you very much for joining, and any questions or comments, now is your time. Yeah, I do. Yes. Jump in and not grab it, but grab it. <laughs> there you go, exactly, good. <laughs> good, good, good. I couldn't resist. <laughs> Rabbi, yeah. I want to say that you did not acknowledge Froggy. He came to us apathetic, indifferent, and now he's a firm Froggy. Okay? Say, wait. Froggy. Say it again. Say it again. What? 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 I, I said, I said, I said, Froggy came to us. Oh, my gosh. Uh, indifferent <laughs> and apathetic, and now he's a firm frog. There you go. How do you have a, how do you have a, what is that? I can't, I can't tell you. Turn it sideways. Oh, turn it sideways. I'm so sorry. That's impressive. That's, a, that's impressive. He was, he was very apathetic, but he is now a very enthusiastic. If we had this up on the screens, then you guys could see this incredible hand puppet frog that Richard has. I'm very, I'm very impressed. Yeah, v v super real. I'm like, um, yeah, this is like, this is like David Copperfield level real. This is like so real. I love David Copperfield because he can transport himself from the front of the theater, from the stage to the back of the theater, just like that. But he had to take a cab to get to the theater in the first place. These are the big questions that I always ask. Like, why does he need the cab ride? Can't he? He flew to New York. Really, David? Really, Bubala? What are you doing flying, bro? Can't you just? All right. All right. Anyway, so yeah, this is all good. Um, thank you for sharing that. I will honestly say that I've been teaching for a number of years now. And I've never had a frog hand puppet make an appearance. So this is definitely. Wow, we, we need to see that frog hand It's, it's, uh, I, it's uh, maybe YouTube. <laughs> oh, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, you went, hold on one second. You know, Richard, let's do this. Um, hold on one second. Let me do this. Let me do speaker view. Okay, here. Frog puppet. One more time, Richard. Not a puppet. Okay, 
It is a puppet. You, he, you keep on saying not a puppet, but I'm pretty sure he's saying it's a puppet. <laughs> You're saying not a puppet. You're saying not a puppet, but what's happening is it's a puppet. All right. Let's do, let's do a few more questions, a few more uh, questions or comments. Rabbi, Steve, yes. Uh, this, is, this is a comment, not yeah. a question. But one-third of frog slash toad species are on the endangered list. Interesting. So, so we would be indifferent to, uh, to frog issues right. if we didn't recognize that. We, we've had fun with frogs this whole time. Right. But, but a third of the species are on the endangered list. We should recognize uh, that frogs uh, deserve our concern. Very, very, very valid point. I did not know that. Thank you for sharing. That's very, that's very powerful. Thank you for sharing that. Right. Mark, yeah. Yeah, I've got something. It's uh, it takes us on a totally on a totally different this whole lesson of yours from a totally different perspective. The first plague was foretold. Egypt would be cursed by war. We know that. Uh, the second plague of the frogs was not foretold. Therefore, the plague of the frogs was the first plague that surprised. Egypt, Egypt's uh, uh, astrologers who prophesied, prophesied all that. And so for that reason, coming in full circle, that if it weren't for the frogs, how would God have, uh, uh, have punished Egypt? I think that's what, what it was there. Right. Uh, uh, well, the point is, that's the first plague, which was not foretold. Got it. Got they it. They didn't see it coming. So that was the one that really got them. By the way, after the good, great point. Thank you for sharing that. By the way, speaking of which, pursuant to what you just said, by the after the the plague of frogs, the Torah says that Pharaoh says to Moses, "Get rid of the frogs, and I'll let you go." So he did, he he broke his promise, obviously, but he did. There was something that hit him hard after that plague of frogs, or with that plague, that got him at least to say those words. Get a, get rid of it, and I'll uh, I'll let you guys go. Anyway, we didn't, uh, say, we didn't say that with the water. With the water treating not water. with the first one. He said that with other ones. He broke his promise multiple times, but not with the first one. Not with the first one. Okay. Interesting. All right. Good. 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 Great to see everybody. I want to wish everybody a um, happy New Year. Happy secular New Year. Um, it's uh, not the Jewish New Year, but hey, why not? If it's a good opportunity to take good resolutions, not a bad thing. So let's. Uh, it's a good time maybe to check in on the other New Year's resolutions and, you know, double down, re-strengthen ourselves. And uh, it, should be, it should really be a year of blessing and mainly, you know, the, the main blessings. Good health and nachas and happiness and, and enough, uh, you know, material things that we need to, you know, to be, to be happy and successful. Everything sh everyone should have whatever they need. And... Um, we should okay. have, and we should have a year of Torah study, a year filled with inspiration and connection, community. Great to see you all. All right. Thank we'll you. see you soon. Take care, everybody. All right. Lots of love to everybody. Take care. Pleasure. Pleasure. Glad that you uh, 